and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Is that license actually valid? We should ask a lawyer. Luckily, today we will be asking a lawyer. Before we get to our guest today, though, I want to introduce a new host for this podcast. We are joined today by Alyssa Wright for the first time. Alyssa is an incredibly awesome person who works at Open Source Collective, and I'm really honored to have her on here. Alyssa, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Richard. I'm blushing. So, and it's great to be here and to join you all. Excellent. And then we have me. Hello, everyone. And our guest today is the illustrious Richard Fontana, who is a lawyer for Red Hat. He lives in Andover, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, where he is joining us today from what looks like his office, just like everyone else in the world at the moment. Richard, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's not really much of an office, more of a closet that I'm <laughs> using as a sort of makeshift office at the moment. But yeah. Well, at least it's got well. Windows, you know, it could be worse. Mm-hmm. It could be yeah. running on Linux. No Windows. <laughs> Yeah, Alyssa, you need, you need to get that fixed. <laughs> so, Richard, we asked you on because you wrote a, a blog post recently, which was the first time I'd seen your name, but you've been in the space for a long time. Can you tell us a bit about how you got to be a lawyer at Red Hat and what do you do? Basically, I specialized in open source legal issues, and that's, that's a very unusual specialty. It's, I don't know how obvious that is to people who are outside of the legal profession. It's extremely unusual. There are very few people who do it. How I got into that and how I ended up at at Red Hat is a kind of a long story. It's basically, if I would sum it up, I'd spent a long time trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I still haven't quite figured that out yet. But so I went to law school. I'm not a software developer really by at all by professional background or, or anything like that. Went to law school. I worked at a big law firm in New York for a few years, and for various reasons, found that kind of dissatisfying and got kind of interested in what was going on in in software development and and the internet and all that. This was in the kind of the mid-1990s, so going back to that era. And I just kind of decided for various reasons to to try some very different things. And I ended up in a computer science grad program at a certain point, and I thought about getting a PhD and didn't end up quite doing that. But I ended up going back into law after a, a fairly significant period of time pursuing other things around software and computer science and and so forth, and attempted to kind of combine the two interests at a certain point in ways that I might find fulfilling, though that was a challenge for a while. But when I started getting into sort of software, I discovered open source. It wasn't really called open source yet, although it soon would be. And I discovered Linux. And that was a whole world that captivated me and wasn't really so interested in the the, the legal issues around open source at that time. But I, I suppose that was one part of a larger culture that really just fascinated me. And I just embraced that kind of culture and brought it with me as I kind of got back into law and finally ended up having an opportunity to sort of work directly in, in this space as a lawyer when Eben Moglen hired me to work at the Software Freedom Law Center. So that's the mid-2000s, around 2005, 2006. And I worked on the drafting of GPL version three primarily at that time. And that took a few years. And that was kind of like my trial by fire and my introduction to a lot of the issues that we deal with in, in open source licensing and so forth. And from there, I went to Red Hat. And I've mostly been at Red Hat since then, uh, although I worked at HP for a few years and then came back to Red Hat 
my work at Red Hat largely involves open source related legal issues, although it's somewhat broader than that. And I would say that a lot of my work involves counseling software developers, so Red Hat engineers, not exclusively so, but a lot of it is working directly with software engineers, which is a little bit unusual also for a lawyer. That's the, I'm afraid, the shortest explanation I can give for how I ended up in this role. It's rare, I think, to meet people who work in open source who aren't programmers. So it's always fun to meet someone who didn't have that, even though you just said you did a CS degree in computer science, which makes me think you're a programmer, whether or not you think so or not. But it's often that people, you know, started off in weird ways. I was a linguist and then sort of segue into programming then program for 10 years and then go to open source in some way. So it's, it's interesting to hear that's just not what you've done. You've just law and then open source. It's also interesting because I had an explosion in my mind when you were talking because I realized I never really thought about the fact that lawyers wrote all the licenses. Lawyers wrote GPL and lawyers wrote MIT. And for some reason, I just assumed those were developers who were kind of snickering to themselves, writing, you know, in scribbles, then putting into all caps in a document. But that's obviously not how it was. It obviously was people who thought really hard about how to make these things work. That actually is a more complicated issue than you might think. I mean, so it is true that lawyers contributed to a lot of the commonly used licenses we use in, in open source. But not exclusively so. And there are some licenses in, in, that you encounter in open source development that were primarily drafted by developers. So it's real kind of a mix, kind of a collaboration in the sense between the two different kind of professional groups. Hey, Richard, you had mentioned that it's actually quite uncommon even to this day that you have open source specific or players with expertise in, in open source. Why is that the case? Yeah, so that's interesting. You know, I think open source is still kind of, it's strange to say this now, I was going to say open source is new from the perspective of lawyers. I mean, the open source initiative, which I used to be a board member of, was founded in 1998. Open source, before it was called open source, has been around for like decades before that. But, you know, why is it such an unusual specialty? I think it's, one thing I would say is there isn't like a lot of money in it. For someone to be attracted to it, I think they'd have to have an interest in the technology or the, the kind of the, the nature of software development or the culture around open source rather than, you know, how sort of flashy or, or plum a job you can get in that sort of area. You know, one issue is that we don't see a ton of lawsuits in open source. So it's not like there's a lot of litigation the way there is in, you know, patent law or, or any number of other areas of law. It's not an area where there's like a regulatory body publishing lots of regulations. So it's very much a niche area, really kind of a niche. So the lawyers who end up being drawn to this area tend to come from certain other areas that are a little bit less sort of narrow or, or niche. They might come from a what we call a transactional side. So people who kind of work primarily on drafting commercial contracts, let's uh, say around software, and they'll be exposed to open source through that. There are some who come to it from more, being more focused on patent law, which is kind of a more mainstream area of law relating to software and other kinds of technology. So it's just sort of inherently kind of a narrow sort of niche kind of area. I think I'm, I don't, I haven't used the word niche before, but I'm inventing but, it now. And would you say that open source is an ecosystem that's or would you advocate for more lawyers in this space? And what can we do as like open source practitioners to make legal experts part of the conversation? One of the problems is that many 
open source projects will naturally not have easy access to the lawyers. This is one of the reasons why SFLC, the Software Freedom Law Center, which I used to work at before I originally came to Red Hat quite a number of years ago, that was a nonprofit, uh, still exists today, a nonprofit that was set up specifically to provide legal resources to non-commercial open source community projects because they otherwise wouldn't really have easy access to lawyers. Lawyers might, and this is basically a matter of financial resources. So most lawyers will charge for their time or you might, if you're uh, you know, an organization, you could hire a lawyer, but you have to have money to kind of pay the lawyer. And so, you know, community projects often don't have those kinds of resources. So it's pretty rare for a like an open source community foundation to have the resources to bring on a lawyer or to have the money to pay an outside lawyer in a a law firm. So, you know, I think, I don't know. I mean, there's, this is not something that, that I think is sort of easily solvable. I mean, you need to kind of grow the population of lawyers that are just sort of exposed to this area to begin with. And then some of them will, you know, get interested in providing perhaps pro bono legal advice to non-commercial projects that don't have a company to provide them with that sort of resource. Now, we have a lot of projects, of course, coming out of Red Hat. And as a lawyer at Red Hat, I'm able to kind of advise the developers, you know, working on those projects. But there are upstream projects that are basically, you know, just community projects that don't have an obvious tie-in to a company or a well-resourced foundation like the Linux Foundation, for example, that just don't have access to that kind of legal expertise. And some of it's a matter of numbers. Part of it is that there are just so few lawyers that have an interest and any kind of expertise in this area that they wouldn't really know who to contact or the the people who they would contact are just too thinly stretched because they're already advising so many different clients. They don't really have too many options to turn to. So I think maybe we can expect this to kind of improve over time. As open source gets more important, which is something that happens over time, more and more lawyers will get kind of exposed to this might kind of develop expertise in this area. I mean, I'm not sure how likely that is to happen, but that certainly might happen. So you mentioned earlier, this is kind of an odd space for lawyers to be in at all because um, there's no regulatory bodies, not a lot of lawsuits. The lawsuit thing is interesting to me because we all put licenses on all of our code, but I guess very few people have the means to go around and say, you've stolen my code or even know that it's been used. You know, How do you know that GPL is being abused? For instance, most of the time you probably can't. You don't have access to closed source stuff that's using it, which is kind of a weird thing. But I want to focus on the regulatory body because we do, in a sense, have a means of shortcutting the need for more lawyers here. We have the OSI. So the OSI goes around and says what an open source license is. And so they have a whole list of here are licenses which meet our approved definition of open source and here are licenses that don't. Now, the open source community's relationship to the OSI has been pretty complex over the years and kind of changed. You recently wrote in a blog post that you're looking to maybe get the open source definitions improved or revamped. Could you talk a bit about why you think that's necessary? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's absolutely necessary. The open source definition, which the OSI has sort of you know, used as a basis for certifying whether licenses are open source or not, or at least whether submitted licenses qualify for the label of open source or not, has that definition has been pretty resilient. Um, they've only had to revise it once in, I think, 2004. You know, in recent years, there have been a number of license submissions. So typically companies trying to submit licenses to get them approved by the OSI that have, I would say, tried to exploit the suboptimal 
drafting or formulation of some provisions in the open source definition. So the open source definition is not a perfect document. It was adapted quite pretty hastily in 1998 when the OSI was formed by taking the Debian free software guidelines and just sort of rebranding or debranding it. And Debian free software guidelines is really aimed at a different sort of problem from what the OSI was facing. So the OSI is trying to kind of certify whether a license is open source or not. Debian was trying to kind of determine whether a license would be sort of safe to include in a distribution that would have, you know, potentially downstream commercial redistributors. So a different set of priorities. So the language of the open source definition is not perfect. And some of it is a little bit arcane. And I don't think if we were drafting a new definition of open source today, it would look very much like that. But it's been pretty resilient. But in recent years, you know, some organizations have, I think, tried to kind of exploit the, some of the vagueness or some of the gaps that sort of exist in the open source definition to try to get licenses approved that really go beyond what I would say our traditional view of what an open source license is, you know, you know would be. So an example from a few years ago is MongoDB's new license, the server-side public license. The, the basic feature of that new license is that it takes sort of GPLv3 or the Afero GPLv3 and sort of extends its copyleft requirement to say that basically your entire stack has to be, you have to release the source code for your entire stack under that license, which it turns out is kind of very impractical and probably designed in reality to discourage competitors from using MongoDB and kind of creating, you know, alternative cloud deployments, cloud-based versions of MongoDB. So some companies have, have tried to kind of get licenses approved as open source because there's a benefit to having that label. So to, to be able to confer that label on a license actually turns out to have kind of immense sort of commercial and, and community value that have that sort of branding. So I think that there are a few areas like this where it might be helpful for the OSI to look to see whether they can clarify aspects of the definition. You know, another area is around the relationship between patents and open source. So some companies have been trying to argue in recent years that an open source license can say, you know, you have all these rights under copyright law, but not under patent law. So I can demand that you, know, you can use my software, you can exercise copyright rights, but I can nonetheless demand patent royalties from you if you use my software. And I would say that is certainly, at the very least, contrary to the spirit of the open source definition. And I think it would be useful to sort of foreclose those kinds of arguments by revising the open source definition to make this issue kind of crystal clear. That basically that an open source license cannot entirely withhold the grant of a patent license from users. So it's interesting that you say, you know, people are trying to come in under the radar and, or at least game the system and try to figure out how to work around the OSD. But at the same time, the OSD itself was sort of slapdash. And so there's also holes in the OSD, right? Which not just can be worked around, but also may not represent what's best for the community or is best for open source in general as a other term, right? Open source has some sort of nebulous concept that we all agree on as a community, what it means. I think probably the best example of this that I know of would be Kyle Mitchell's License Zero, right? Which I would consider open source, but the OSD wouldn't because it's saying you, if you're a corporation, you have to pay. But if you're a private developer, you don't. You know, that's for me, that's just an extension of the GPL in some sort of way. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So first, Kyle Mitchell, I've never actually met him in person, but I kind of consider him an internet friend. And he's just this very impressive person that, you know, 
I totally want to be him when I grow up. That said, he submitted a version of License Zero, the reciprocal variety of License Zero, which I think is called something else now. He submitted that for approval by the Open Source Initiative a few years ago. And I was pretty opposed to it as a license that could qualify for the label open source. So, so this license, the version that existed back then, at least, the main gist of it was that it said that if you put a, you know, you have a tool that you put under this license, zero reciprocal, I think that's what it was called, L-O-R-L-0-R, that the output of your tool has to also be, you have to provide source code for the output of your tool and release that under an open source license, or else you have to kind of pay for the privilege of not doing that. And, you know, my view is basically that, you know, a lot of what we, and this can be criticized, but, but a lot of what we should understand the definition of open source as meaning should, you know, first and foremost, look at tradition, because this is a culture that is kind of evolving a tradition of expectations around what open source means. And one of those expectations is that you can use open source to create software that is not open source. So Kyle's license was completely at odds with that sort of tradition. And, you know, we can argue whether it's time to shift the tradition in a different direction or kind of a, a very new direction because the existing approach hasn't been satisfactory enough. And I think, you know, to do that, I think that's a situation where you would want something like uh, an organization like the OSI to kind of carefully consider, you know, revising the open source definition to clarify that a license can require output to be open source. But short of that, to say that the existing definition, which doesn't speak to this issue in a very explicit way at all, um, to say that the existing definition supports the idea that a license that requires output to be open source can be an open source license itself, is, you know, it just goes against that tradition. And I think that's just an inappropriate way of interpreting the definitions we currently have. So, you know, if we want to kind of explore something like that, or let's say the ethical source licenses, that which is a kind of a very interesting new direction that there's this whole new splinter movement that is advocating for that their view of open source is compatible with placing these restrictions on certain kinds of uses of the software. If you want to argue that open source should encompass those kinds of restrictions, let's, you know, at the very least, talk about revising the formal definitions we have, whether it's the open source definition or the FSF free software definition, or the Debian free software guidelines to make very clear that, you know, we are now going to tolerate those kinds of restrictions as being compatible with what we consider free software or open source. But if we don't do that, then, you know, I think we have to take our somewhat unclear documents as they are and kind of look to tradition in terms of how to interpret them. And, and I think that the tradition doesn't support the idea of extending our understanding to those new kinds of restrictive licenses. I would agree with you. And I think that Going through and finding a way to fit those sort of licenses into the framework might be a smart move, right? So not just saying this isn't a license, therefore we're not going to consider it under the OSD, but saying, oh, this is this type of license here, and maybe it's not totally open source, but this is, say, an ethical license, or this is, say, a patent license, which is open source except for patents, might be a way of dealing with the issue and informing conversation and maybe improving things in the long term. It also makes me think of API licenses, right, which just limit the use of APIs in general, which is a whole another type of open source license. I'm not very familiar with that. You probably know what I'm talking about better than I do. There's an issue of whether APIs themselves can be restricted or basically owned as property uh, you know, in the underlying legal system. So basically, whether it's copyright law or patent law would probably be one of those two areas. 
So there is a, a case that's pretty well known now, Oracle versus Google, that raises the issue of whether copyright can extend to APIs as such. That issue is currently before the United States Supreme Court. It's not necessarily the issue that the Supreme Court is going to dispose of the case on because there are other issues at play there. But it is possible that the Supreme Court will give guidance on the question whether an API itself can be copyrighted. If an API can be copyrighted, then you can start to sort of think about whether you can have an open source license because open source licenses are basically, you know, primarily based on copyright. Although I would argue, as I was kind of suggesting earlier, they also extend to patent law, patent licensing of patent rights, but they are in a certain direct sense on copyright licenses. And so if APIs are copyrightable, then you can start to think about, you know, whether an open source license can apply to the APIs in and of themselves, as opposed to the code that implements an API. Up till this point, we've been kind of assuming that APIs are in the public domain. We had this decision in Oracle v. Google in in an appellate court a few years ago that suggested or ruled otherwise, that basically said that Oracle validly had a copyright ownership interest in the Java SE API. So we've been kind of assuming in the industry, both in open source and, and more generally all this time, that APIs are not restrictable by law, and at least under copyright. And Oracle v. Google raises the issue of whether that's no longer true in the United States. And I am hoping that the Supreme Court actually does address the issue of copyrightability and rules in favor of Google that you know, basically decides that APIs cannot be copyrighted, which is the, you know, the traditional view in the community and the industry. If it rules the other way or if it leaves the issue kind of basically unresolved at the Supreme Court level, we're going to have this confusing situation in the United States, kind of the best case. And in the worst case, we'll have a clear sort of situation that APIs are copyrightable. In the worst case, in the best case, we have this kind of confusing situation where one appellate court says that APIs are copyrightable. What are the implications for open source licensing if that happens? So suddenly we are no longer sort of sure how to interpret open source licenses, you know, because we've been previously assuming that they don't actually apply to APIs. So one issue is going to be, you know, what happens if I want to re-implement someone's API? Let's say someone has an API. Let's leave the GPL outside of this. Let's say someone has a, a library under the Apache license, and I want to do a, you know, completely new implementation, but I want to put it under the MIT license because I prefer the MIT license. Would Oracle v. Google suggest that I am no longer able to do that? I would have to put my implementation under the Apache license or partially under the Apache license, that's one of the things that is potentially going to be unclear if APIs are copyrightable. And, you know, if you start kind of thinking about the GPL, things get, you know, more complicated. Copyleft licenses. What are the implications for re-implementing a GPL licensed piece of software, whether under an open source license or a proprietary license, if APIs are copyrightable? So I'm hoping that the rule we end up with is kind of consistent with what we've been assuming it has been for the past any number of decades, which is that APIs are these things that are in the public domain and don't affect this right to re-implement that we've been assuming that we have. I actually wanted to return back to the article that you wrote, because as I was reading through it, I was interested to know what inspired you to write it to suggest a revision of the definition now, as opposed to why this, why now? a bit of a question. And why is it relevant for what's happening in open source? 
One thing that I noticed, you know, around a year ago, and this was sort of in the wake of the submission of the MongoDB license to the OSI or OSI approval. So MongoDB wrote this this new license that I was talking about earlier, the server-side public license. They submitted it for OSI approval. The discussion on the OSI's license review mailing list was pretty hostile, pretty negative. I myself wasn't that active in that discussion, but I, but I, I was pretty negative about certain aspects of the license and pretty skeptical about whether that should be open source. MongoDB ended up withdrawing its submission, I think because they assumed that the OSI would formally reject it. Earlier, Kyle Mitchell, we were talking about Kyle Mitchell earlier, Kyle Mitchell had submitted his license, which kind of was pushing things in a new, new direction. That also received kind of a hostile review on license review. And so depending on how you kind of look at the archives, I would say that he withdrew his license from consideration because it probably looked like it, it was going to get rejected. And at that time, I was on the OSI board. So we've had a few of these high-profile license submissions that have tried to kind of push things in this new direction. We've also had this kind of little movement in the business community from some companies that call themselves open source companies. And I guess I would include MongoDB in this group, but there are other other companies as well that sort of have, they, they typically have business models that are based on proprietary software licensing, but they will be stewards of a kind of open source license code base, at least historically, that they have put under an open source license. And these companies have, leaving MongoDB aside, these companies have been experimenting with a new set of licenses that they don't necessarily contend are open source, but sort of look like open source licenses to some degree. But they have certain restrictions in that historically would have been considered incompatible with open source. So they basically would violate the, the open source definition has these two provisions that are anti-discrimination provisions. And these licenses, like the Commons Clause is one of them. There's been a number of other licenses. Some of them are called source available licenses. Confluence had a license of this sort. So these licenses tend to have restrictions in them that on competitors, uh, potential competitors using the software. So they might say that, you know, you can use the software pretty much for any purposes that you want, you know, with very broad permissions of the sort that you're familiar with in traditional open source licenses except that you can't use the software to provide a competing service, or you can't use the software to provide a competing cloud service or a competing product in our field of technology. If my software is a database, you can't use the software to provide a competing database product. So there's been that movement. And I think that there's been a certain amount of criticism of the OSI for maintaining that the open source definition shouldn't be sort of chipped away at and shouldn't be sort of relaxed to kind of embrace these new kinds of, you know, more anti-competitive, if you will, licenses that are sort of protective of certain business models, that these licenses that tolerate certain discrimination, certain forms of discrimination, should not be accepted as open source. This was criticized by some people in the community as being sort of excessively conservative. And I think that that there's an argument that the OSI would be on stronger ground if the open source definition said some of these things in a more straightforward, clear way. So maybe it could say very clearly that, you know, for example, the right to take the code and modify it and use it in a commercially competing product is basically unlimited as long as you otherwise comply with the license. That isn't said quite explicitly in the open source definition today, but it's been something we've kind of been assuming all along is one of these rights we have in open source under open source licenses. Maybe that's something that the open source definition could say more explicitly. On the patent side, you know, there's this kind of parallel issue going on that I talked about around 
whether open source licenses can restrict patent licensing altogether. So basically, you can license software under a copyright license, but demand patent royalties if you use the software. The open source definition doesn't clearly say that is inconsistent with the open source definition. You can certainly talk about tradition. You can talk about how some of the provisions of the open source definition are suggest that this is not a legitimate way of interpreting open source licenses or drafting new open source licenses. But the definition doesn't say that in a crystal clear sort of way. So to make this clear and to kind of forestall this argument that open source licenses can validly be consistent with a complete failure to grant patent license rights if you are the software licensor. It may be best to think about revising the open source definition just to kind of say that quite clearly instead of the situation we have today, which is, you know, kind of relies on history and interpretation of text. Yeah, can I ask some quick fire questions if you have a moment? Well, maybe this won't be quick, but for for me, it's a weird thing (laughs) because I have been involved in open source for a really long time. I'm not a programmer, but I'm very passionate about it. And I can't make heads or tails of all of these licenses. It's like spaghetti to me. And half the time I wish that they would make, you know, open source licenses for dummies that I could, you know, put a poster that I choose license.com. I would love your recommendation of what to look at, who to follow. How does one become fluent? Yeah. So people do ask me this question, this kind of question a lot. I don't have a great suggestion. I don't think that we have good resources. So Richard L. mentioned choosealicense.com, which is the site that GitHub maintains that tries to sort of distill the sorts of choices you have as a developer, the licensing choices you have as as a developer to a few kind of basic options. And and that's maybe as good, you know, I, I think that's a fine suggestion for someone to get a starting sense. I don't think we have good resources. And I'm not sure even that having a lot more lawyers in in this area would help. I I think, you know, we called it a language. I think that's kind of accurate. It's this whole kind of weird sort of charming world that has grown up. You know, I don't want to exaggerate the complexity of it. There's most projects are these days drawing from a small set of licenses. You know, there's the GPL. There's two popular versions of the GPL. There's the MIT license, which may be the most popular license for new projects nowadays. The Apache license is kind of like the MIT license and being very permissive, unlike the GPL, which is more relatively restricted for an open source license. And then there's like a kind of like a set of licenses that sort of exist in between. So there's sort of three different categories. And if you look at it a certain way, there's two different categories, copyleft and permissive and non-copyleft. So that's like my effort to sum, sum it up. I mean, the way I learned this is really more by exposure than by kind of reading someone's explanation of things. And I actually kind of got, I was sort of, I would say, led astray by reading what lawyers wrote about this topic. Like, I feel like one of the, like the powerful things that we have learned as a culture about open source is that it is a really, I'll even use the word superior way of creating technology, of having these processes and this like, and this transparency. And I feel like that we've kind of crossed a tipping point in the technology development, but it makes me wonder, is there anything that like the legal profession has learned about how open source has been developed that this, has it changed the way you do law? 
how you communicate with each other? Is there anything that's like reminiscent of open source software development that's exists in the legal yeah. field? One thing that oh, I don't think many lawyers, even those who are kind of exposed to open source, which is a very small group, haven't really kind of thought about, but a few of them have, is that something that lawyers do all the time in their work is kind of comparable to what you know, open source developers do in a certain sense. So what lawyers do is in, in kind of lawyers create documents to a large extent that could be contracts, that could be, you know, legal arguments, written legal arguments, brief. What they do is they will kind of copy from each other. And in a way that's kind of very much analogous to open source development in the sense, because you're sort of copying other people's what stuff that other people have created except that there's no concern about licensing at all. And now maybe you could argue that legal texts are like totally functional and should be outside the scope of copyright, but it's not clear that's correct. So this whole area of activity that lawyers are involved in that involves sharing of possibly copyrighted material where there's no concern at all about licensing. And that's kind of interesting. But leaving that aside, for the most part, lawyers have not been influenced by what's been going on in open source development. And I think that one of the things we were talking about Kyle Mitchell one of the things that, that I think is really interesting about Kyle Mitchell is that he's a lawyer who is trying to take the lessons of open source development and apply them to the day-to-day practice of a lawyer. And I think that's just so interesting. So he's developed a lot of tools. He has a whole GitHub repository of like tools and stuff that he has developed. He's just like extremely prolific. This is why I said I want to be him when I grow up. He's very atypical though. So lawyers for the most part are not are kind of living in this world that's like kind of outside of knowledge of open source. Lawyers who are involved in open source, though, which is a, a small group, I think that they have been influenced by this kind of culture of developer collaboration that they are naturally getting exposed to. And so, so we have this community of lawyers that exists, and we have our own sort of mailing lists and kind of fora to talk to each other, and we have events. And I think I sometimes think that those kinds of events and resources have been influenced by what's been going on in the developer sphere. So there's a certain degree of kind of collaboration. There's there's a real kind of community that has grown up among these lawyers, which is kind of nice to see. And I think it's been, it's kind of grown up in, in almost an imitation of what these lawyers have been seeing happening in the world that developers inhabit. Fascinating. I don't know what happened in my life, but there's so many questions I have for you around licensing, which I did not expect a year ago when I started this podcast. I, I really want to ask about what do you think about nationalist licenses? You know, because a lot of governments these days are trying to do open source, but keep it in their little wheelhouse, which is really interesting. But I want to ask about more and more things, but we are running out of time, which is unfortunate. And before we get to spotlight, I want to make sure we have two things that we talk about. One of them is where people can reach you and where they can read your stuff on the internet. But the other one, which I think I'm more interested in is what are you excited about going on? in the licensing world, in the open source legal world? What's happening that we don't know about that's just over the horizon? Or what are you looking for in the new sun that's about to rise? So, I mean, some of the things that are the most exciting are the things that that I worry about. So some of it is, you know, these recent efforts to kind of challenge the authority of an organization like OSI or the Free Software Foundation as being sort of authorities on how to define open source. That really interests me because we can kind of get together as a community and start thinking in a way that maybe we haven't in the past about what we want open source to mean or what we have always believed open source to mean. And that can result in sort of, you know, useful improvements in how we think about 
open source from a kind of licensing standpoint. This Oracle v. Google case that I talked about is kind of exciting because, you know, even though it's a little bit worrisome, because we can think about how we would, you know, respond as a community to an outcome in which, you know, APIs are determined to be copyrightable. And that has more kind of general benefits because there are a, a lot of issues that come up around license interpretation and how we should draft new open source licenses and how we should understand the definition of open source, which is largely kind of a licensing oriented definition, although one can kind of argue about that. So there's a lot of these kinds of issues that have come up. And I think thinking about how we can best respond as a community to those developments is really interesting. And we need to kind of respond collectively. One of the things that I also, again, also sort of worrisome, but that we think about at Red Hat is, you know, there's been some efforts to litigate the GPL in Germany by one copyright holder in recent years. And that's raised all sorts of issues around, you know, what sort of a legitimate approach to license enforcement, you know, that we could go on and on about that. We've been talking a lot about that at Red Hat. So those are all sort of, in a certain sense, kind of negative and not positive, but, you know, but those are some of the things that certainly interest me a lot. Well, that's not just negative because, I mean, the whole idea of licensing is protection, right? It's protecting people who make stuff. It's trying to make sure that the people who are the license holders are able to say what they want in the world. And so looking at licensing in general as, well, there's going to be this doom thing happening over here, you know, that's, it could be seen as negative, but also positive in some senses. Where can people read about you online? Do you have a Twitter account? Do you ever post anything? Or are you a legal person who says, nope, sorry, not your lawyer all the time? One thing I kind of like about Red Hat is that it's given me a certain amount of room to develop a kind of atypical lawyer personality, at least in the kind of role I have. So I do have a Twitter account. It's at Richard Fontana. I do occasionally tweet things. I'm not that prolific these days. I've also written some stuff on opensource.com, which is a, a website that Red Hat sponsors. And our team at Red Hat has, has tried to, to write interesting articles on kind of legal issues in open source. But there's a lot of other stuff there that's, that's interesting as well. So I've written some articles there, and I'm planning on writing some new ones in the, the near future. So people can look there, opensource.com. People can also contact me by email at any time. rfontana at redhat.com is my work email address. And I have tons of personal email addresses. Fontana at sharp11.org is one of them, but you can probably find some others out there. Thank you so much. And now before you leave, let's get on to Spotlight, where we talk about cool things that have helped us out in the past or projects which we think just need a little bit more light shed on them. Alyssa, what is your Spotlight today? I suppose two things that I'm currently excited about. One is that we've been working hard on the digital infrastructure grant with Ford Sloan, Mozilla, Open Society Foundation, MIDIAR, and the quality of proposals around open source digital infrastructure, both in terms of ways that we can like further research the space as well as create, you know, valuable implementations has really been inspiring and fascinating. And the opportunity to bring together so many, you know, really powerful funders in the space to like build a, this kind of collaborative conversation around how we support and sustain digital infrastructure has been a continual spotlight for these past couple of weeks. I'm also excited about something that, you know, Richard and well, Richard won, I guess, <laughs> and I have, have work on, which is a quadratic funding explorations with Gitcoin. And this is about bringing a kind of democratic matching to 
open source contributions. And it's something that we are building towards kind of a March platform date. So I'm really excited about both the sustainability of digital infrastructure, as well as kind of the creativity of how we can, you know, sustain our open source. And I'll pass it over to Richard. You guys can guess which one I meant. Thank you. Um, my spotlight today is actually just Kevin Mitchell's website. He has a thing on it called Projects. I was going through looking at the projects, being like, which one should I talk about? Should it be composable? Should it be licensed zero? Should it be in the open source? And I realized I could just link this page. Kevin Mitchell's incredibly prolific. And if you're interested in cool licensed stuff, you should definitely check out projects.kemitchell.com. Richard Fontana, what is your spotlight today? I suggested YouTube DL, which has been in the news lately. The YouTube DL is a project that basically you use it to download videos from video streaming sites like YouTube and others. It's been in the news because it was the subject of a takedown. So their GitHub repository is the subject of a takedown by the RIAA. Now, this is actually a project that I use in my sort of non-lawyer life, which I don't have as much time to kind of spend on it as I would like. But I, in some of my free time, I kind of work on being a musician. I'm interested in jazz in particular. And one of the ways you develop as a jazz musician is you have to take recordings and reverse engineer them in a sense. And so because so many recordings are now basically accessible on sites like YouTube, a tool like YouTube DL is very useful in making it possible to kind of, you know, get a copy of a recording and do that sort of reverse engineering so that you can figure out what the musician is doing and, and so forth. And, you know, we could get into like why that's fair use and why there are so many copyright fair uses of a tool like YouTube DL, but I wanted to certainly spotlight that one. Love it. As a longtime user of YouTube DL myself, mostly for music reasons, it's a real shame to see that happen. It's just very interesting to watch. Richard, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you on here, even though I think you're the first guest who's had a name conflict, but naming is difficult in open source. So that's fine. We'll just get over it. But thank you so much. I'm looking forward to doing more licensed stuff in the future and asking your advice on many things if possible. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.